Welcome to Let Genius Burn, a podcast series about the life and legacy of Louisa May Alcott. I'm Jill Fuller. And I'm Jamie Burgess. In today's episode, we're ending season two with a conversation between Jamie and me, where we'll share what we're reading and what we're up to next. This is Louisa Revisited. Season two was incredible. I thought it was incredible. I can't believe it's real life. Sometimes I would say to myself, I can't believe I get to spend this time talking to these people who know so much about Louisa and they just are so willing to share their knowledge. It Mm -hmm. was so enlightening. I could not have predicted how much I would learn. Yeah. I really hope our listeners come away with just a deeper and a richer understanding of not just Louisa, but just her world and how she relates to us still today. I feel like that's, I think, some of the biggest things that I got from the people that we talked to, you know, talking with Daniel about how the research came about to put her journals and letters together and talking with Jan about how people relate to Louisa when they come to Orchard House and talking with John about just some of the the ways that he sees the Elcots kind of leading the way into the future and just their inspiration, seeing how Leslie is just inspired by the Elcots to create just amazing pieces of art. All of these things, like all of these pieces and threads, literally, not to just <laughs> go off of Leslie, but you know, seeing how all of that inspiration, all of that just comes back to us still today and we can continue to use it and work with it. And, um, and who knows where it will go from here. I just found that so inspiring. Some of the highlights for me are when Daniel had that suggestion about what if she had called the book, the marches or the March family. Mm-hmm. I really loved that. I felt like I had never thought about it before, even though it seemed kind of obvious But that was an insight that I kept thinking about for a long time. And then when John talked about Louisa's example and bringing that into the future, you know, he didn't talk about her activism and the Alcott's values around like abolition and so on. He really just talked about kindness and helping other people. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was beautiful. And I thought it was true. I mean, it really resonated with me deeply. Those things made me so happy. What I, what touched me a lot was how Leslie spoke about how Louisa's childhood, how she related to it so deeply, because I feel the exact same way. I relate so much to a lot of pieces of Louisa's childhood, especially that era of her life. And, you know, that stuck with me a lot. I loved talking to Leslie about her art. I think Louisa would actually really appreciate what she does. Mm -hmm. I think there might have been cases where, you know, Louisa found the fanfare over little women, a little bit of an eye roll. Like, what are you guys getting so excited about? It's just a novel about these four sisters. Mm -hmm. 
But Leslie's work was so next level and really seemed to understand the depth of of her emotion at such a young age. It's so easy to dismiss when someone is 11 years old that maybe their emotions are not so valid. Yeah. And yet we know that that's not true. We know how profoundly that affected Louisa, that experience affected the rest of her life. So Mm -hmm. to see that and to see an artist who had such empathy for that age was really moving to me. For each of the seven guests that we spoke to, there are seven more super interesting people who have done alcohol projects that I can't wait to speak to. And the fact that there is this living, growing community of people who take an interest in the lives of the Alcots and how we we share certain values with them, these core values, like John was saying, those core values of kindness and sharing each other's burdens and so on. I think that's a big part of it. And I just can't wait to hear about these other women who are taking Louisa's writing and making it into art or other humans who are exploring different ways to see her work and the way that it's going to affect how we see Louisa. I mean, I don't think that the editors of Louisa's letters and journals had any idea when they were working on the project, just what that would mean in the future to people like me and you, to people Mm -hmm. like Leslie, to people like Lauren or Barbara, who then really have benefited so much and been able to go in so many different directions because of that. Mm -hmm. So similarly, I just think, wow, I can't, I can't believe this is real. I can't wait to hear more. I can't wait to see what else people think and know people think and know so many interesting things that I don't. I know. I still like think back of the first time that I ever read Eden's Outcasts and picking it up and looking at Louisa's picture on the cover. And just, I remember intimately looking at that photo, which is the photo that we have on our logo now on the Let Genius Burn graphic and thinking, and just looking at her face and just being like, I want to know that person. I remember that thought just flashing into my head. And then here I am, you know, it, it is, it's, it's like so surreal, you know, sitting on these zoom meetings and I'm sur- I've got my phone and I'm like surreptitiously taking photos for myself of like, look, I'm talking to Daniel Sheely and look, I'm talking to Jan, you know, or John Madison, you know, because I cannot believe that these talented people, these artists and these researchers and these writers would be so generous with their time to sit and to talk about, about Louisa and about the Elcots. And I'm just blown away that this happened. And so I'm thrilled and I'm honored. And so I just, Jill of 10, 11 years ago, looking at that picture would be, I think, pretty excited to know that this is where, this is where it led. Well, other than, you know, these are Alcott people. And I guess that's what I'm saying is like, yeah, this they're is so generous at their time. Of course, of right. So brilliant. Yeah. And they're all got people like me and you, Jill. Yeah. And like all of our listeners out there, like these beautiful comments we've been getting. And oh, true. I know. It's just, it's just a whole, it's a whole family. It's lovely. Mm-hmm. I think Louisa would love that. I really hope so. Mm-hmm. I really hope so. I mean, it's hard to know with her. She might be like, leave me alone. But hmm. uh, they 
on the letters, based on the letters to the Lucans, you know, she didn't like fame, but she, um, she was willing to step out and, and, uh, help a stranger. And if it aligned with her values, then she would do so. Okay. So we were going to talk a little bit about what we've been reading and researching lately. So do you want to go ahead, Jamie? Yeah, so this is my first year teaching elementary school. I've taught at the college level, taught at a community college. I taught high school when I lived in France. And last school year, I taught middle school. And this year is my first year in elementary school. And I was in second grade, which is exciting because I actually skipped second grade. So this is my first time ever being in second grade. <laughs> Congratulations. You finished Thank second you so grade. Much. <laughs> in one and a half days, I will finish second grade right. for the first time at 34. And I'm very excited. <laughs> but the funny thing about teaching second grade in Concord is it's the year that the students learn about Concord history. So I teach at Thoreau Elementary. So we learned all about Henry David Thoreau. Second graders actually go to Walden Pond and have, you know, a tour. And when I worked at Orchard House as a guide, we historically always had the second graders from Concord, from every public school in Concord, come to Orchard House for an education program. Of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic, that has changed a bit. And we did a virtual visit for Orchard House this year. But I got to see what it's like to learn about the Alcotts when you are seven or eight years old, which was really exciting. (laughs) So I ended up reading some picture books about Louisa and I wanted to talk a little bit about those interpretations and just like what I kind of learned anew by teaching Louisa to eight-year-olds. And I'm going to start with Louisa, The Life of Louisa May Alcott, which is a picture book. It's very much a biography of Louisa. It is episodic, I would say, in structure, almost like each page is describing a different incident in Louisa's life. So, you know, starting from her birth, going straight through to her death. And it describes in detail the end of her life with Bronson saying, you know, I'm going, come with me. And Louisa saying, not yet, father, I have to take care of Anna and so on. So I really like the way this picture book laid out Louisa's life. The author is Yona Zaldis McDonough. And one thing in particular that I really liked about this book is the illustrations because they have quite a lot of movement. And I think Louisa is someone who was always in motion. She was someone who ran and acted. And I can picture her, you know, really acting out stories as she was telling them to people. She was someone very animated. And that's mm-hmm. not something we really get in her daguerreotypes and in, mm-hmm. you know, more formal biographies. So these illustrations are very beautiful because they are very animated. And 
Um, a lot of the language in this book is actually very familiar. It feels almost like you're just getting this overview of the Alcots. You're, it's like you're at Orchard House um, and someone is describing kind of what happened to the Alcots. And it doesn't shy away from some of the harder things like May's death, um, which I actually found kind of hard to talk about with eight-year-olds when we were teaching mm-hmm. it at school. So f- overall, for biographies of Louisa for that young of a person, I thought this was really great. It did not rely on any knowledge of little women to get into this story. And I love that because yeah. eight years old is actually too young to read Little Women at this point. Maybe mm-hmm. it wasn't in the 19th century, but as I'm rereading Little Women now, I'm like, oh yeah, this is, you know, this is some language that's hard to, for mm-hmm. that young of a reader. Yeah. I'm going to talk briefly about one other picture book and then get into longer, more like chapter book biographies. But this picture book, I don't even know if this is still in print, but it's called Louisa May and Thoreau, Mr. Thoreau's Flute, Julie Dunlap and Mary Beth Lorbiecki. Pictures by Mary Azarian, winner of the Caldecott Medal. I love this picture book. What I love about it is it features Louisa as a child. And it is just Louisa's relationship with Thoreau as a child. It gets a little bit into, you know, his influence on her as she got older. But it's basically like allowing a child to read a story about another child. It's not about this great woman that you will never know who died 150 years ago. It's like Mm -hmm. Louisa was a child and she was a precocious child and she sneaked out of her house to go on adventures with Thoreau because she was so enthralled by his knowledge. And I loved the portrait of Thoreau and his outfits and how different he kind of looked than other people. I thought that that was really fun to imagine. There were some things I like wasn't really fully in agreement about like Mr. Alcott scoffed about Thoreau. It says about, about Thoreau, Mr. Alcott scoffed hasn't he anything better to do? Bronson, what were you doing? That's my <laughs> Yeah, that's a bit rich. <laughs> haven't, haven't you anything better to do than whatever it is you're doing? So um, I didn't actually think that Bronson would ever put that kind of judgment on Thoreau, but I think it was more setting up the um, grown-ups are different than, than children mm-hmm. in terms of their values. And then allowing Thoreau to really kind of be this in-between, which I think he really was. Mm -hmm. I don't know that much. You know, I've read the Robert Richardson biography and I've like been to the Thoreau gathering a few times, but I don't, I wouldn't say I feel like I could speak to Thoreau's character that way, but I do think he kind of moved between adulthood and childhood in the way that this book shows. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you're, you're an adult, but you're, you're not like other adults. Kind of and so, it reminds me, I mean, I'm the same way. I do I'm not an expert in any way, but it when you're speaking of that, it reminds me of like Mr. Rogers almost. Like having just kind of like that childlike perspective on things. Like he's an adult, 
but ha- but is able to perceive the world maybe in a way that adults have forgotten how to. And that's kind of how he was able to see nature. Well, and fully able to respect children's mm-hmm. full mm-hmm. humanity. Right. And talk which, to them as if they were people, which is also what Mr. Rogers did. Yeah. And when you work at an elementary school, that's a very useful thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the teachers who are not doing that are not anywhere near as successful. They're not anywhere near able to reach the children and make the learning experience for them. So I, I really, really like this one. I love the drawings too. Yeah. They're these woodcut illustrations and they're really great. Very unique, beautiful. I think you should, I think you should check this one out, especially if you already have it. Yeah, it is sitting on my shelf. I think I got it at like a book sale at the library once. And so I think I've paged through it. I've never read it like with my son, but I think that we'll have to do that before our trip to Massachusetts. Cause he, I knows definitely, that, yeah. he knows we're coming to see Louisa's house and he knows that we're going to be coming to see something called Walden Pond. Like that would maybe make it connect a little bit. So um, yes. thank you for reminding me that I have that on my shelf. Yes. I, I think that would be great. I think he would get a lot out of it. And then, yeah, we can read it, you know, again, when he's here, if that's helpful. Yeah, that'd be great. For a little bit older readers to get introductions to Louisa. I think it's a natural progression that when you've read Little Women, you are curious about the author's life. You realize that there is a lot of truth in this story. Just from working at Orchard House, it always seemed like that was what happened. Oh, my child read Little Women. So we are here because now Mm -hmm. it is the time to learn about Louisa. And so Biographies of Louisa May Alcott for that age where you are able to read Little Women and probably have read it and and really loved it. And that's what led you down this path. I think that they can easily end up relying too heavily on Little Women for making their point. And I would, I guess that's what I would say about this one, Scribble, Sorrows and Russet Leather Boots. Did you read this one? Uh, no, but again, I have this one on my shelf. <laughs> the Life of Louisa May Alcott by Liz Rosenberg. Mm-hmm. It was making a lot of parallels between Louisa and Joe really quickly where I was thinking, oh my gosh, if uh, if I was going to read this out loud to my class, they would be like, what is, who is Joe and what is happening? <laughs> um, so I still refer to the classic of Invincible Louisa as like the standard for young adult biographies of Louisa. I really think that that one is, it's just a a story that anyone could read and get excited about Louisa's life. Anyone. And in particular, it is geared toward younger readers. So I am currently reading Little Women to some young readers in my life. I have a partner who has children. They are 10 and almost eight. So it's time to read Little Women, of course, and I'm reading it out loud to them. Mm -hmm. And I haven't read Little Women in its entirety, probably in eight years, probably since graduate school. So I'm reading it out loud and we are currently um, on the experiments chapter, which is a chapter that I know intimately. 
but you know, we just finished my ghost vanity fair. And when I was reading each of these chapters, you know, when I was reading about Amy and the limes and about Beth going to play the piano, a couple of things are really striking me. First is I'm surprised how much I'm, I'm actually modifying the language as I read out loud. Hmm. And it's making me think, I got to go back to the annotated little women because there's stuff in here I have never investigated that I clearly don't know what it is. Right. Um, and it is making me realize how rich with illusion little women is. Hmm. And then for as progressive, as amazingly forward thinking as little women was, the portraits of the of the young women as so vibrant, as full agents of their lives, the subjectivity that it gives to these women, which I think is very feminist, which I think the first time I read Little Women kind of as a grown up when I was like, you know, in my early 20s. Um, and I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even remember that this book was like this. Like these women are so real. This is so great. I haven't been seeing this at all in my like formal English literary studies and being so moved by that. As I'm reading it out loud now to them, I'm kind of going like, oh, do I like some of this language about, you know, a woman's place and how women have to grow up? And um, particularly in Meg's Vanity Fair, it just felt a bit, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I don't know how I feel about reading this to them. I don't want to betray Louisa. Mm. But I also, there are some values that aren't lining up, obviously. Right. Right. Well, and so this is an interesting like rediscovery for me as well. That's really fascinating, Jamie, because I understand we started listening to the audiobook at one point. And then my son, who is only five, so it's we're not ready yet, but um, I just kind of wanted to get him started. And he was just like, "Mm, no, not not interested. And so I was, you know, not going to push it. But it, I kind of had a similar thing where it's just like, because it was an audiobook, I couldn't do any of that. I couldn't do any of the language changing or any of the explaining. Yeah. Yep. And I mean, I, we read Harry Potter and I even have to do that with Harry Potter where there's, there's times where we have to talk about it. It's so nuanced. Like things can be very nuanced and for children, they don't quite understand that nuance. And I feel like little women is one of those things that because it is so far removed from our own modern day understanding, especially yeah, there's, there's so many things where you'd have to almost have a discussion all the time about, Mm -hmm. well, what, what is she actually saying here? What is going on here? There's a deep, maybe there's a deeper meaning here. And, and that kind of ties into that conversation of with little women being a classic. And is this something that kids can still read and kids can still relate to, or is this something for older people now? I don't know. You know, that's, that's really interesting that you've got like this kind of new perspective on it now that you're reading it in a different way. Well, right. Because I want to be careful and clear about the values that I am putting forward with Mm -hmm. these children. And I'm also very struck as I'm reading it by how amazing of a job Greta Gerwig did by taking these exact quotes and just bringing them to life. How did she do it? That is another revelation, maybe for a different time. But as I'm reading it out loud, I'm noticing that I'm like mimicking the intonation of that <laughs> particular movie and sure. just how well she did that. I think that that is 
a really great way to bring little women to younger people and make it accessible and yet keep it the same. Mm-hmm. And I'm also just loving when they love it and like when they notice things about the characters or they'll ask a question that, you know, I get to say something like, well, in real life, it was like this. <laughs> it's that's, like, you it's know, like you hold the all the, you hold all the secrets, you know, like you, right. You know, well, but I mean, your reader at home, your son is an ad- advanced mm-hmm. reader. I mean, yeah. he lis- he's listened to Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The fact that he could listen to Lord of the Rings and maybe not understand Little Women, I think is really interesting. Well, I don't know if he was not understanding it or if he just got bored, to be quite honest. So, and that was one of those things where I wasn't going to push it. I was like, if you're just not ready, you're just not ready. On our, on our road trip out to see you, we are going to try the secret garden and a couple other classics. And so the secret garden is a good one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What else of Louisa's could you do? We have done hospital sketches. I've, so that actually segues very nicely. One of the things that we did recently as a family is we went to the Milton House Museum, which is here in Wisconsin. Um, and we have talked about that on the podcast. That was one of the organizations we supported in season one. And we, you and I, Jamie, have done a presentation for them before on the Elcots. And the Milton House is the only surviving uh, Underground Railroad site in Wisconsin. And they are run as a house museum. And you can go into the tunnel and go like see everything. It's really, really great. They do a really good job telling the story of freedom seekers coming North. And, um, so they do a civil war days, uh, every May around the time of Memorial day. It's like the week before Memorial day. So we went down and did that. And so on the way, because I knew they were going to have a hospital tent set up and they were going to do a demonstration of what the hospital tent would look like. A little bit different than Louise's experience because they were doing one on the battle, you know, what it would look like on the battlefield, but still. Mm -hmm. So then on the way down, we read some snippets from uh, hospital sketches while we were in the car and he loved it. So there was, again, some times where I did some editing just because there were maybe some, I mean, bigger words, I'll explain bigger words. I won't edit those, but sometimes she'd have a little bit of a run on sentences and I would just clip it. you know, or I would skip to something, you know, but we read through most of it really there and back. He was fascinated. And when we got back into the car afterwards, you know, he really enjoyed the civil war days. He really enjoyed the hospital tent demonstration. We looked at all of the instruments they had laid out and, but then we get back in the car and we're about to drive home. And I kind of think, you know, we're all tired and whatever. And then he's like, is there another chapter to that hospital book? So I was like, yeah, there is. So oh, he's so good. Yeah. He's so so we, smart. Yeah. So we finished, we've read the the last chapter on the way home. So we've read pretty much mm. all of it. And so that was really great. I think it was perfect because he was excited about the event we were going to like it tied in with his interest. Sure, that's what you that do for sense. any reader, right? You find something that's going to tie in with their interest, a book that's going to hook them for whatever reason. And hospital sketches just, it was the perfect timing because we were going to mm-hmm. an event he was excited about He's just really into right now, like all of that stuff, the the blood and thunder stuff. Right. And so it was just like, well, Louisa wrote this book about being a nurse and all the soldiers and, you know, and so he just was That's like, great. okay. And he, yeah, yeah. And he loved it. Yeah. So, and I loved, I mean, you know, and that warmed my heart, of course. 
it's so fun introducing the Alcots to young people. And, you know, for my class, because I emphasized how important this was to me, they really, you know, they took a serious interest in it That's so for sweet. me. It was yeah. very, very sweet. It was very, very sweet. I think the material that I'm most excited about for young readers cultivate further and deeper interest in Louisa. So like Louisa May, I'm a Sir Thoreau's flute. You're like, okay, tell me more about this Louisa person. Who does she become? Whereas other interpretations for young readers, maybe they're not as inviting that way. That's what I'm looking for for my students is, does this create people who are, you know, excited and inquiring and ready to learn more and go deeper? Yeah, I love that. So tell me about what you've been reading and researching. Sure. Well, I've been still doing my research on the Lucan sisters, which I was really excited. I got to give a presentation on my research for a symposium at Lancaster University last month. I did not go get to fly to England, though. That was it was virtual, but that's okay. <laughs> I I had some tea with me so that I could feel like I was British for a little bit. Um, so that was <laughs> such a dork, but that was really that was really fun, and um, I'm really excited to kind of do a little bit more research on the Lucan sisters, maybe do some more writing on them and Mm -hmm. yeah, see where that goes. But also I am very interested in kind of doing some digging into Louisa May Alcott's queerness and her in her biography, as well as her works. So I have been kind of collecting academic articles because there aren't really any books out there that really talk about it very much. Some of the biographies touch on it, but you don't really get anything definitive because there isn't anything really definitive, definitive there's, but there's enough there that I would say it's, it's pretty definitive that Louise Mailcott was queer to some extent. Right. So, and we've talked about that on the podcast. Um, And a lot of the articles that I've picked up, I'll just mention a few of them. A lot of them look at her works, you know, they kind of go into textual right, they're, analysis. They're literary criticism. Right, sure, literary criticism. But because Little Women is so autobiographical, you know, they're going to touch on her as well. So it kind of, it's it's just been really, really interesting. I'm really excited about diving a little bit deeper into that and just kind of um, looking at Little Women, but also it talks about a few of her other pieces. So I'll talk about one in, um, more in depth in just a second here with kind of just queering it a little bit. Um, And for those who are, you know, maybe a little interested or just not sure what I'm talking about. So queering doesn't necessarily mean gay, right? Queer and gay are not necessarily synonymous. Queer just means that it's just not cis heteronormative. So Mm -hmm. queering can be, is just going outside of that cis heteronormative way of, of reading it or analyzing it. So that's kind of what a lot of these articles have been doing. Uh, so the top two that I've enjoyed so far is the story of Joe, literary tomboys, little women, and the sexual textual politics of narrative desire. And that's by Karen Quimby from back in 2003 in mm-hmm. GLQ, a journal of lesbian and gay studies. And this one's really good because it's really looking at the way that the tomboy, the idea of tomboy um, has been defined. Okay. And how feminist analysis has looked at Joe as a tomboy and has just kind of limited 
the idea of Joe as a tomboy and seeing it as just like a phase or something that she gets over, quote unquote, Mm -hmm, and still mm -hmm. kind of keeping it as something that is still heterosexual. And so um, one of the things that I really like, I underlined it here, that she says that she looks at some of the other uh, academics discussions of the tomboy, you know, Joe as tomboy. Uh, She says that they don't consider that representations of girlhood male identification like a tomboy may express networks of desires and identifications that convey other queer possibilities. So basically just looking at the ways that the, you know, the concept of the tomboy can be more than just um, a girl who doesn't like to wear dresses until she hits a point where suddenly she does. And that's kind of how a lot of feminist analysis has looked at Joe as a tomboy still mm-hmm. within this heterosexual framework. And right, so, sure. right. So this article is kind of breaking that open a little bit and querying it a little bit and saying, well, there could be other possibilities here. Louisa May Alcott is writing Joe potentially as a queer personality and the, and her tomboy characterization is, is a way of really, really showing showcasing that. So I really liked how she discusses that and compares and contrasts that. So it was a great article. I highly recommend mm-hmm. it to anyone who is interested. And you can find it probably on JSTOR. I got it. I don't have access to JSTOR, but I do have access to my library and they have interlibrary loan. Thank goodness. I get all these articles. Then. Ask a librarian, friends. If you're listening, ask a librarian. Ask a librarian. They'll they get it for it. you. All right. But the one that I really want to talk about, Jamie, I was so excited. Tell me everything. Okay. This one is called. Louisa May Alcott's Queer Geniuses. And it talks, I know, it talks all about the concept of genius burning as a queer construct. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I know. This podcast. I know. This is gay. <laughs> well, queer and gay are not the same thing, but I know what you mean. So it basically looks at how the concept, and we've talked about this as well, about genius, about how it was very gendered in the 19th century. The definition of it was very gendered, but it was like set up as a binary kind of against sentimentalism, right? So you have people who are geniuses and then you have like other writers who just write sentimentalist fiction, which is like Elcott and Stowe and like all these other mostly women writers and they can't be geniuses because they're Mm -hmm. women and they write sentimentalist fiction. So it's these two Mm -hmm. binary camps. And so, but this author argues in looking at the way that Elcott particularly takes the concept of genius because Elcott was obsessed with the idea of genius and writes about it Mm -hmm. all the time. Um, She looks at or he looks, I'm sorry, Gustavus Stadler is the one who um, wrote this article. And this is from back in 1999, even. He looks at Little Women and he also looks at the story that Daniel Sheely discovered, Freak of a Genius. Oh, I know. Comes oh my circle. gosh, it all comes full circle. I, I love know. it. Goosebumps. Okay. So it looks at both of those stories and how Elcott takes the concept of genius and actually explores, and he says others were doing this too, but he's really looking at Elcott here explores like queering the concept of genius. So again, queering is just breaking beyond the boundaries of that cis heteronormative concept, queering the concept of genius to question that binary and these assumptions of genius as being set up between this binary, this this gendered binary. 
Mm. So exploring the ways that genius is two halves is a masculine and a feminine, these two things. So, and they, he says that Elcott does this, that has these masculine and feminine traits through a same sex genius pair. There's always this character genius pair. So in freak of a genius, it's Kent and St. George. Kent is a poet who's kind Mm -hmm. of just like, you know, he's, he's a great writer. He's a great poet, but he doesn't want anything to do with the public. And he's very reticent and he's very moody and he's very, you know, whatever. And then there's St. George who wants to be a poet um, and is very popular and handsome and, but has very feminine, you know, Elcott describes him as having very feminine traits as far as like physicality. Um, Hmm. So they come up with a bargain that St. George will take all the credit for Kent's poems so that he gets the public persona and Kent gets to keep writing and the two of them. And there's kind of some chemistry between them. There's some very obvious flirtation between them in the story, some very um, homosexual er eroticism kind of. Um, But there's kind of this idea of these two forces. One is passive, one active. One is one produces and the other one is kind of that public persona. So you've got these two same sex pairing. Um, and they said, in, he said in Little Women, it's Joe and Beth. Beth is kind of the inspiration for Joe writing. Beth is the, you know, the, the very feminine, kind of the dying consumptive, that, you know, that invalid uh, kind mm-hmm. of trope kind of thing. And you've got Joe, who is the writer who doesn't want anything to do with, you know, fame, who's very moody, who's very brash, who's very, you know, so you've got the, again, that kind of same sex genius pair. So, and so he analyzes all of that. I'm not going to go into all that. Just read the article. It's great. But he also goes into like the term for burning. I'm getting so excited over here. I know. This is so exciting. So genius comes from a Latin word for male fertility, and it's associated with heat, which is why you get a lot of, I mean, Elcott's not the first one to come up with like the concept of genius burning and like that term, like that comes up a lot, but burning is prevalent throughout all three Plumfield novels. You have it not just in Little Women, but all three of them is stuff burning. You know, you got the manuscript burning. You have Beth's face um, burning by the hearth in the, that first scene while she's toasting mm-hmm. her bread. There's just stuff burning mm-hmm. all the time. And so he's saying that this concept of burning and genius burning crosses the gender lines too, in that it's both intellectual with Joe's genius burning and domestic, where you've got the domestic stuff is burning. Joe's dress burns um, when she stands oh, too sure. close to the yeah, fire. Beth is toasting her bread. Yeah. So you've got even the, the concept of burning and genius burning crosses these gendered lines. So, we, you know, mm-hmm. Elcott queering kind of the idea of that, of that burning, that heat as well. Mm-hmm. So really just kind of one of the things I pulled out was just the, he said the gendered flexibility of genius, that it wasn't just these very strict, the strict binary. It was this gendered flexibility that Elcott creates. And I just was like blown away by this. And I was like, it ties in with the podcast title and it's like queer, like crazy. (laughs) I was very excited. (laughs) It's so cool. It really is. That's so exciting. Yep. So that's Um, what I've been reading. (laughs) So you talked about the dichotomy of male genius, right? And then women writing this like sentimental domestic fiction, therefore they could not be geniuses. That was the distinction, right? Yeah. But basically also like there was this 19th century kind of romantic ideal of genius that was also upheld that 
and this is where it gets a little complicated, that did kind of have, um, it feminized it a little bit in that sometimes it would, um, you know, they talked about Keats a little bit. Like Keats was this like literary oh, romantic sure. ideal. And and when they would write and about it, right, a little bit effeminate. And so there was already kind of a little bit of this gender bending around genius. Mm. But when it came to like categorizing works, it was very binary. And so like mm. that then there were these women, largely like Elcott who are taking, but he, the author lists a couple others who kind of seem to have been aware of this, or at least, you know, whether consciously or unconsciously. And, and we're kind of playing with these ideas of this, like Mm -hmm. he said, this flexibility of this gendered concept of genius and really trying to, to play with that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really interesting. It is really interesting. It's making me think how Joe ends up as one of those authors of like, you know, domestic sentimental fiction, like Louisa did, right? Mm-hmm. Louisa also, mm-hmm. Louisa went from really striving with moods to prove that she had this literary genius to writing Little Women. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, not only you know, selling out in terms of the way she thought about literature. But in this case, it sounds like also in terms of who she really was in her gender identity. He also, the author makes a really interesting comment too, in that in the kind of romantic ideal and Elcott upholds it too. genius. Like she almost kind of seems to make a criticism of what genius of, of how the 19th century defines genius Mm-hmm. Like she may have understood that she didn't qualify as genius and as, as the way they defined it. She in in both of the stories, or at least especially in Freak of a Genius, public persona like seems to matter more as a genius than what you actually produce. Okay. Which I thought was really interesting. Um, because A, she did not, she was not interested in that. Like she was mm-hmm. not interested in, in a, having a public persona and being on stage, you know, but they use the example of Keats and he uses the example of St. George in the story as showing that oftentimes who you were to the public and the persona that you created actually was more about elevating your status as a genius than what you actually created. And mm. I thought that was so interesting too this was written in 1999, just the parallel of that to how we look at social media today and how your public persona sometimes matters more than what you actually create or do, mm-hmm. you know? And just, I just really thought that was so prescient because we're still struggling with that concept of what does it mean to produce? What does it mean to create? If I'm making posts instead of actually doing my art, You know what I mean? Like, I mean, you know, so, so apparently that was part of the discourse about what it meant to be a genius and what genius meant even back in the 19th century. And Louisa seems to have tapped into that, especially in the character of St. George in Freak of a Genius. So it was, it's, there's, there's so many little pieces to it. It's a very dense article, but it's, I had to, I read it three times because it's just like, oh my gosh, there's so many other little things to pull out. That's so exciting. Yeah. What a fun Mm -hmm. thing to read about. And, you know, it's clear that Louisa had questions about 
gender and how it matched with her Mm -hmm. identity. Yeah. Those quotes that we hear again and again from her journal about, you know, I wish I were born a man and I'm a, I'm a freak. I'm a man in a woman's body kind of thing. Those things are really interesting and they do lead us in a certain direction and to toward a certain idea. But to think about directly how that would have influenced what she created, what she felt was in her right to create based on yeah. who she well, was. Yeah, I mean, because she was still influenced by the culture in which she was living as far Absolutely. as what she created, right? She's reacting to, I mean, they quoted something from the Atlantic Monthly um, from right around the time she was writing, um, I think, Freak of a Genius, um, something about Rousseau's genius, you know? So she's, Mm -hmm. she's obviously being very, very influenced by the things that she's reading and the things she's seeing. She's not creating in a vacuum, you know, she's not getting these Mm -hmm. ideas from nothing, you know? So, um, so there is, there is a lot of that too, to, to keep in mind this, this isn't coming out of nowhere, but she's obviously putting a bit of a spin on it. And that's what this author is arguing is that, you know, she's creating this idea or or exploring a bit more this idea of genius as something that isn't just wholly masculine or wholly feminine. It is something that has this, it's not the quality of duality. Right. Well, of course, because it takes both. It takes balance. Mm -hmm. Well, like one of the other articles I was reading, this was on dismantling gender roles and redefining womanhood in Louise Malecott's Little Women. Uh, And this was just written last year. So this is a little bit more it argues that that Joe mm-hmm. blends femininity and masculinity, right? So it's critiquing mm-hmm. gender roles, which we've said on this mm-hmm. podcast too. Yeah. But also, I mean, I think that you could argue that Elcott is trying through Joe to take away gendered labels at all, mm-hmm. to have no masculine and no feminine. And you could mm-hmm. maybe make that argument even with this queering the idea of genius, where before it's, it's not really both, binary. but neither. Yeah, where there it is not about blending a masculine and feminine. It's taking away any concept of either gender role. Where it's mm. just it's having it. It just is this, you know, uh, where it has all wow. these traits, and it doesn't the the concept of even just having assigning gender to these traits is gone. Wow, that's some really exciting stuff. Yeah, I definitely think it's. I'm going to be doing some more research to just see what other articles are out there. You know, if anyone has any recommendations, send them my way. Um, I know Louisa Mailcott's queerness is something that is a hot topic. We've seen that debated on the Louisa Mailcott Facebook group, whether she was or she wasn't or how she identifies. Um, You know, basically, I would say that, you know, I'm not here to gender her one way or the other or misgender her one way or the other. I'm here to just do the research and and make theories. And, you know, I think that um, it's always important to be open to possibility. And I think there's enough in the historical record that we have to be open to it and we have to be accepting mm-hmm. of it. Uh, mm-hmm. Louisa wrote enough. Uh, that was something else that I took from one of the articles. Um, there was one, um, Blurring the Boundaries, the Sexuality of Little Women by Donna Marie Tuck. She makes the argument that just because Joe says some things in Little Women that sounds homosexual does not mean that she is. And I, you know, I mean, one could say that, I suppose. But 
you know, naming your desires and your needs, even if you never act on them, just the, the, the fact of naming them, the fact of being truthful to yourself is a huge mm. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a radical act of queerness right there. There's a lot of evidence that we don't have. So I think that we can't say definitively. I don't think that we can name an identity for her. I don't think that we can, I, I don't think we have the right to do that personally. She's a person. And so we don't have the right to say who she was or what her pronouns were. That's her personal business. But I think that there is enough in the historical record that we've seen that she was naming something for herself Mm -hmm. that we cannot just ignore it just because we don't like it. And so, and I feel pretty passionate about that. So, Oh yeah, I support you. Well, you know, and you focus on the history and then I think as someone who's trained in the literary criticism side of things, you can find the support in the text. That's different when we're talking about Joe, when we're talking about fictional characters, I mean, that's completely Right. Completely different. Completely different. Than talking about Louisa and her actual life. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be seeing you in a couple of weeks, Jamie. I can't wait, Jill. So listeners, stay tuned because there is going to be some season two bonus content coming from our explorations of Alcott sites around New England. Yes. My first trip to New England, my first trip to Concord. You guys will get to hear some of it. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. For more about Louisa, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Let Genius Burn. If you're enjoying the show, please give us five stars on your podcast app. Reviews help us find new listeners and new fans for Louisa. You'll find more information, including the resources used for this episode, in the show notes and on our website at LetGeniusBurn.com. Mm-hmm.